0: Hey, Chris. Hey, man. How are you? Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it.
1: I'm happy to do it. Thank you for uh, for wanting to have me on in the first place. I appreciate you.
0: Yo! Welcome to my summer lair. I'm your host, Sammy, and one Yunnan. Welcome, Chris Herring, a senior writer at Sports Illustrated who covers the NBA. He's the author of Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. Oh yes, the flagrant history of the 1990s Knicks. What a classic NBA team. Pat Riley, Patrick Ewing, Anthony Mason, John Starks, Charles Smith. I'll even include Spike Lee. Seriously. In his NBA book, Chris takes readers on a journey through the intense and sometimes controversial history of the 90s New York Knicks. From the elbows of battles on the court to the behind-the-scenes drama, Chris offers a fascinating and in-depth look at one of the most iconic teams in NBA history, a team that oddly never won a championship. Typically, books are written about championship teams. This is a recognized team that didn't win. Got super close, though, yo. In this my summer layer interview, yeah, in this my summer layer interview, we'll delve deep into Chris's research and insights, explore basketball stories that range from death threats, yo, to the spiritual faith of these distinct characters, yo, all the wackiness that made the '90s Knicks such a captivating team. So, into the time machine we go, back to the 1990s, one of the most unforgettable eras in basketball history.
1: Sound, the final frontier. My summer lair is an enterprise, a pop culture voyage with a continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new creators and celebrate established producers, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now here is your host, Sammy Yunnan.
0: And it's funny too, talking to you like the day after Hubert Davis's birthday, and you wrote. I did not realize that. Yeah. Yesterday was his birthday. So it's one of the classic Knicks moments, right? With that Pippin uh, foul call or non-call, I guess, because you kind of address that a little bit in the book.
1: Yeah, there's that. And then I'm pretty sure I know over the weekend, I was saying that um, it was basically like the 30 year anniversary of basically the end of that Bulls series during Riley's first year uh, where they took the Bulls to seven and and Riley told, his players to, to basically knock Michael Jordan out if he tried to come through the lane. and um, You know, so it's just, it, it, you know, all of it is about 30 years ago at this point, you know, the Van Gundy era, maybe 25 years.
0: That's crazy. So I know you've been doing some interviews for the book. Uh, Cause you've been talking to readers. Um, and I know you've interviewed a number of people. Um, you've gotten a lot of reaction and especially too you've done when you do interviews, I know a generalization is not a good place to start, but, if you could sum it up, what is the common reaction when, you, when you're there to talk about the 90s Knicks? When you bring up the 90s Knicks, what kind of emotions do people have?
1: Well, it depends on who you're talking to, and I think that's why it's you know it was a good project to do. Um, when you're talking to fans, they, especially Knicks fans, they are thrilled generally to talk about them either because they kind of bled and, and died with those teams and, and fell in love with those teams I think younger fans that that weren't old enough to have watched them are curious and have heard about it a lot, but don't really understand the depths of why people cared about them so much or exactly what made those teams special. Um, But then even when you go outside of people that are Knicks fans, you get to people that were Bulls fans or Pacers fans or Heat fans, um, really any other team. And most of those people were not big fans of the Knicks. They in some cases despise them because they, the Knicks did not play the cleanest style. (laughs) Um, I don't think they were necessarily dirty all the time, but they certainly pushed the line of kind of what was acceptable uh, defensively as far as the way they played. So I think those are generally the best teams to do a big project like this on teams that a lot of people love and care about and teams that a lot of people really hate. Uh, And, you know, I don't know if the Knicks had enough success to be hated Mm -hmm. but they certainly were not everybody's cup of tea from, you know, the way they play defense to just kind of how little offense they had at times. Um, You know, so I just think it kind of strikes the right balance between those two things. I think regardless of whether you like them or dislike them, or if you didn't have a real opinion on them, there still was a story to tell with this team. And I think they kind of um, dictated a lot of how basketball would be played during the 1990s and, for a lot of people, that is a really, really curious, interesting, fascinating decade when you're talking about NBA history.
0: Yeah, you had a trailer for this love, this reaction, this hate, because you were a sports journalist, or you still are, but you were for Wall Street Journal, and you were covering the Knicks at that time when Anthony Mason died. So you got to kind of see some of that reaction that you're talking about, that love, that hate, that kind of like, it's hard to put them into a kind of like a box kind of, it's all contradictions.
1: Yeah, yeah, as far as Anthony Mason, there were a lot of contradictions. But despite those, um, well, I'll say this. I don't know that sports fans have ever been great about, uh, how do you put it? People people are layered and people are complicated. Mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily expect sports fans to be the best always at putting that within the proper context or, um, you know, and also like it's difficult in this country where you're – innocent until you're proven guilty and so you've got layers and shades of that where someone might settle out of court on something that is really really ugly but they weren't put in prison for it or they didn't go to jail for it or anything like that so you've got people that have a lot of layers to that and and people that settle civil cases and stuff like that um anthony mason was a complicated dude uh who had some stuff in his background that you know i'm sure he would not have been the, the proudest of some stuff that he had to kind of combat in court to, you know, to try to prove that he didn't do it. Um, and, you know, I mentioned the statutory rape charges and, mm-hmm. you know, and the book and stuff like that. Um, and he was someone that, you know, that was in constant bar fights. He was someone that would kind of hurl insults at women. And sometimes, you know, was accused of hitting women uh, at, at bars and stuff like that. So he was complicated, certainly, but Knicks fans swear by him. I, I, and that's what I was getting at is that I don't know if, fans are always like the best arbiter of that sort of thing. But I think that they are really loyal and really love the people that make them feel good when they watch games, obviously there are exceptions when something is completely beyond the pale. But then again, we have stuff like the Kobe situation where again, it's complicated. Um, if you read in between the lines of, of that and really the allegations that were made with that and what was said and what happened the night that everything was alleged to have happened with Kobe and Colorado um, it's, it's pretty, uh, jarring and pretty kind of heartbreaking to read some of that. But I do think that the longer you're on a big stage like that from a sports standpoint, that a lot of people will remember you on the court, uh, especially if you have the sort of career Kobe did for better or worse. And and I think some of that was true with Anthony Mason. I learned firsthand when I was covering the team, how deeply the fan base loved Anthony Mason, despite all those flaws, despite how hot-headed he was, despite, you know, the falling out that he had with Riley, he, he was a New Yorker. And mm-hmm. um, one thing about New Yorkers, I think, is that they they like flaws in all sort of stories. Uh, and Mason was a good example of that. John Starks was maybe even a better example than Anthony Mason was. But certainly um, that was one of the more eye opening things that I remember when I was on the beat uh, covering the team for those four or five years was that when Anthony Mason passed away, I understood that he was a Nick. Um, and I understood that that was the team that he was going to be most remembered for playing with, but I didn't realize how deep the passion was for him and, uh, how hard a hit that was for a lot of Nick fans for him to pass away at such a young age in particular, but he, he matters a lot to the fan base. I think really people have only become more curious and, and, you know, even young people that did not really get a chance to watch him play, I think have become curious about him and, and kind of, you know, made a point to try to watch games from those years and, and clips from those years to understand better what sort of player he was.
0: Yeah, he's one of those guys where like um, he he fits for the team like the same way that Draymond Green fits for the Warriors. I don't know that you necessarily could put Draymond Green on other teams and it would work the same way. Um, and his talent is undeniable, but what the things that Draymond does is very specific and it works for the Warriors. And Anthony Mason is kind of the same way. He's kind of built for a specific kind of like Knicks style basketball. And so I know he's played overseas and other teams and things like that but that era for the Knicks he worked he was the lego piece you could plot him in and put him in and it would stick and would work.
1: Yeah, and I don't you're right, I don't know that that would have worked for everybody else. I, it it took a certain type of coach, it took a certain type of team to kind of probably deal with his antics to some mm. extent um to deal with the way he played and and also probably a big team because a lot of people would look at him and say, okay, he's a power forward. He's not someone that can shoot very well. He has a very ugly shot. (laughs) He can defend well, but he's kind of like an in-between size. He's not really tall enough to be a power forward. He's not really a small forward, you know, um, because normally you would expect a little bit more shooting, a little bit more scoring out of a position like that. So he stuck because he was just such a rugged defensive player who had enough ball handling skill for the Knicks, who were a team that didn't really have that much ball handling. So it worked well. Riley saw something that he liked about him from a ball handling standpoint, you know, an up-tempo sort of standpoint. And, um, you know, quite frankly, as soon as Riley left, Don Nelson decided he wanted to run the whole offense through Anthony Mason, which was different. So certainly at that point, it took a much different sort of coach to really get some of the best out of his abilities. And I don't even think Pat Riley would have gotten that out of uh, out of Anthony Mason, he really. There's actually a clip that was circulating. Um, I think I found it maybe a couple months ago, where uh Pat Riley, Anthony Mason was saying he desperately wanted the responsibility of handling the ball more, and Pat Riley just kind of made this face in an interview when he was asked about it. He was like, "No, I, I don't think he needs to do that. <laughs> I think he needs to just kind of stick to what got him here. We don't need him to do that." So Riley was a little bit more of a. Um, cut and dry don't you know he didn't really want you to go outside the game plan or outside of your ability but the truth is mason had some of that to his ability i think that uh riley was a little bit more rigid in terms of the way he viewed things nelson was more wide open but you know i think between the two of them they they got the best out of anthony mason in one way or another
0: although n- nelson got in trouble with anthony mason didn't anthony mason leave him uh a- a really strong note. It's a story in your uh, death book. Death threat. Yeah, death threat. Yeah. That's the best way to put it. Yeah. You want to explain? Expand it was hard on that? not
1: to be. It was hard not to be in trouble with with Anthony Mason though, because he he did have these outbursts. I mean, enough to where Don Nelson wondered if uh, if it was fueled by roid rage. If it was roid rage, basically. Uh, and obviously, Anthony Mason had a really, really huge, you know, Herculean physique. Mm-hmm that, you know, probably did raise some questions back then. I asked a lot of questions around that to the people I spoke with for the book and really nobody had a clear answer. They all said that they weren't aware of anything. Um, You know, so I I didn't really harp on it or or make a a huge point about it, but it did momentarily hold up the trade when Don Nelson, the the trade between the Hornets and the Knicks when uh, they were trying to get Larry Johnson because Don Nelson, after being fired, who was friends with Dave Cowens, the Hornets coach, basically spoke to Don Nelson and just kind of wanted a sense of what sort of player, what sort of guy Anthony Mason was. And Don Nelson said, I found him to be difficult. Like he was a little scary. He had have these outbursts in the middle of practice in the middle of games, just go off on you. And you had no clue where it was coming from. And I always suspected that maybe it had something to do with steroids. So, you know, when you hear that as, as the Hornets coach, that's about to coach this guy, you're immediately going to tell your team owner to you know, stop the presses to kind of pump the brakes Mm -hmm. about making a deal like that um, for someone that's going to be on the books for another three, four years. Um, Actually, it might've been another four or five years that uh, his contract was going to run for. So they did momentarily hold up the trade. They made it anyway um, after, I guess the Knicks kind of allayed some of Dave Cowan's concerns about that. And Dave Cowan said that he, you know, he grew to really like Anthony Mason um, as while he was coaching him, but he was different. And I mean, the, the craziest thing about the Don Nelson, Anthony Mason run and when Mason did allegedly leave the death threat and the, the written death threat on Nelson's desk, Don Nelson was playing Anthony Mason, the most minutes of anyone in the league. Um, Anthony Mason led the league in minutes that season. And Anthony Mason was still complaining about playing time to the point where he left Don Nelson a death threat. So, <laughs> you know, that, that I think on some level tells you that he wasn't. He was really, really, really high strung in a way that sometimes scared uh, coaches. Certainly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it ever really scared the players, but uh, the players sensed that he was on edge, uh, he was very territorial. He he viewed a lot of things as a betrayal. And quite frankly, it was the same way Pat Riley was, you know, Pat Riley could view the smallest of things. You know, I, I mentioned in the book that even um, Dave Check, the team president, Riley's boss. um, checkets his wife called one day to ask if dave checkets was okay with the idea of getting certain color cars
0: oh the, yeah uh, for <laughs> this story's
1: family. crazy the chevy the chevy suburban that she was going to buy for the family and uh um, you know she asked about green first and dave checkets is fine with green but riley is within earshot of this phone conversation that checkets is having with his wife and riley riley chimes in as if it, he has anything to do with it, and he says you can't get green dave that's the color of the celtics for or where, and check it's laughs but mm-hmm. riley isn't you know joking he's being serious about that and so check tells his wife it can't be green uh she circles back and says how about red then and riley gets even more frustrated about that because that's the color the bulls wear mm-hmm. so the same way that riley would have viewed you know i think somewhat seriously getting a different color car is like a betrayal anthony mason was wired like that too as far as if you weren't going to allow him to cut the line, as far as who was, you know, first up to get their hair cut by his best friend. Um, if you were going to play somebody else over him, if you were going to take him out of a game for making a mistake, he viewed all these things as betrayals. And I think it's part of the reason that he and Riley butted heads so strongly a lot of the time is that they were really, really similar. I mean, obviously you look at them and they don't look the same um, and not similar from that standpoint. And, You know their impulses were a little bit different, but um, I do think that they had like kind of an iron will, probably too strong of a will sometimes, and it kind of was part of the reason that they butted heads off.
0: That iron will is a good way to put it. So when you're a beat writer for the Wall Street Journal, you're writing now for Sports Illustrated, you're covering the NBA playoffs, for example, like. As a beat writer for the Knicks, are you hunting for stories like this? Like these death threats and these kind of stories? Or are you just kind of like reacting to the game, last night's game, for example? Like what is it you're looking for when you're a beat writer? Because obviously this book is filled with stories, right? And so the approach is different. Right.
1: Yeah, no, it's 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 very, very different. Um. I mean, I'll put it this way. I was writing for the Wall Street Journal. People don't read the Wall Street Journal for like the first of all anybody that had a story on like a death threat if you knew that and you had the details of it solidly you would write it Mm -hmm. um if you could confirm it so it's not to say i was shying away from that but it was the wall street journal so when i got there they even told me we don't need stories on like what the third string point guard is up to or you know that he's hurt one day we don't need stories on those it's the wall street journal so people are going to look to us if you're writing about the Knicks or if you're writing about anything people want to know there's a reason for it it's not just kind of like oh because you have to write it because the third string point guard is hurt or is you know as pinky is broken or something like that like nobody cares about that and even if you do some people really do care about all that stuff just because they're diehard fans of the team or fantasy basketball or anything else they can read that information on ESPN or they can read that information in the daily news or the New York post. They've got a lot of outlets that they can read that sort of information. So don't put it in the wall street journal. We need to kind of give them a value added situation where they're reading us because they need to know they can get something here that they can't get everywhere else. So I was trying to write stories that were really unusual about, you know, the decision-making that went into who would shoot technical foul free throws, uh, when Carmelo would shoot them despite the fact that he didn't have anywhere near the best free throw percentage on the team. Uh, I would write stories about um, how you know looking at statistically how many points, rebounds, and assists on average starting point guards they played against and then putting those statistics into um, in the context and saying that you know the Knicks are allowing 22 points, nine rebounds and six assists per game to starting point guards over the last three weeks. The only player in the league averaging those numbers right now is, I don't know, James Harden. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the idea that the Knicks are essentially making every single point guard they play against on average James Harden. Uh, you know, stuff from like an interesting statistical standpoint to kind of drive a point home in a way and package in a way that's not the way you would normally read it again, to draw attention, but to try to make readers smarter, Mm -hmm. um, to give them kind of interesting locker room stories. I I wrote a story on how Carmelo started learning how to play chess at the age of 29 or something like that. Um, And, you know, it's it's not anything he'd ever talked about before. So it's just stuff that if you read our section, you're going to learn something you certainly didn't know and probably weren't even thinking about. That was the way I approached it. But I, I would also say that, um, while you have some people that are skilled enough and talented enough to kind of get behind the scenes and write stories in real time about death threats, about, you know, whether it's uh, Matt Barnes and Derek Fisher, I guess happened during my time on the beat Mm -hmm. and everything with that. Uh, It's hard to do. So you don't see that much of it. I don't think there's that much salacious stuff that any one reporter gets. I'd have to think off the top of my head, like, Every now and then you get somebody that is really good at uncovering those things, but it's not often. Uh, But also people are more willing to open up after the fact. It's it's kind of like anything else where when you're in the moment, maybe you're not an open book as far as what's happening behind the scenes with you. But after 10 or 15 years go by, uh, there's not as much of a risk in kind of opening up about what stuff was like behind closed doors. In this case, we're talking about, again, 25 or 30 years ago, Uh, for a team that has not been that good over the last 20 years. So in a way, this is kind of getting to relive the glory years for guys that played in the 90s, that even if they were tough on themselves or if the media was tough on them back then, now most people can look back on that pretty fondly and realize we had it pretty good. We were doing pretty well. It was a, a pretty positive time for the Knicks. So they're a little bit more willing to open up about those things now. So I would say that's the biggest difference is that people are more willing to pull back the curtain after all these years. Whereas, you know, if you're asking somebody about something that happened yesterday, particularly as they're playing against certain teams and you're asking about a game plan or a strategy, they're not going to do that in the middle of a season or in the middle of a series or something like that. Yeah. Um, The benefit of hindsight is really helpful as a researcher and as a reporter to kind of know, okay, there, there was this argument happening between Pat Riley and management At the time, when you're in the moment, you don't necessarily know that that's going to lead to Pat Riley leaving.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Now you can step back and look and say that there was kind of a little bit, the dominoes were kind of falling into place as all that was happening. We just didn't really have the foresight to see it completely at the time.
0: An example, what you're talking about, this is a modern example. It's not really related to the Knicks per se, but like the the James Harden, Ben Simmons trade. It's still too early to know uh, how that's going to work out because we've never seen Ben Simmons on the floor. Right. We've got a sample size now of Harden on the Sixers. So we've got some of that data. But but again, because when the trade immediately happened, there's all these articles and tweets and everything. Everybody has positions and uh, insights and stats and all these kind of things. But as you said, it takes a little while for us, like uh, five, 10 years, 20 years down the road. Then we can kind of sit down and like, hey, was that really a good trade? Was that a bad trade? And we can kind of figure that out. Sure, sure.
1: And, and and you you do get books. It's not to say you can only do a book on something that happened 20 years ago, 25 years ago. I've got plenty on my shelf now. Speaking of the, the Sixers, I've got Tanking to the Top sitting right here. Oh, it's a by great my book, friend, yeah. Uh, Jerome Weitzman, mm-hmm. yeah, he's done a great job writing about the Sixers in the past. And certainly that book is great. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's more difficult to write a book like that, quite frankly, because um, one of the big issues he ran into in trying to do it was that the Sixers more or less told him and, and told everyone in the organization not to speak with him while he was writing the book because you still have so many of those people in charge um, that were in charge at the time still there um, at the time he was writing it. So there was very little incentive. Again, when you're midstream, you're normally not going to feel as open about kind of getting into the strategy and the why and the how. You also can't speak, I guess you could, but you're less likely to speak openly if you feel like you have to criticize Joel Embiid, are you really gonna do that if you still work for the Sixers? Mm-hmm. Are you really going to take shots at, you know, the franchise player? Can you do that without worrying for your job, uh, you know, about the future of your job? So, you know, it it, it can be done. It's just difficult. You really have to dot all your eyes and cross all your T's. Miren Fader uh just had a book out honest um, book last year also. Yeah, um, on, on Giannis. So same sort of thing with, mm-hmm. with that. It's uh, it, it can be done. It's just really difficult. and You've got to be a really excellent reporter and probably just as good a writer to pull it up.
0: For Blood in the Garden, though, you you approached Jeff Perlman uh, for some advice because he's an excellent writer. I just recently read his Shaq and Kobe book, Three Ring Circus. Um, he's got yes. a Bo Jackson book coming out in October. Can't wait for that. That's I'm gonna make a strong tea for that. So, what advice did uh, <laughs> Jeff Perlman give you uh, in terms of writing this book, Blood in the Garden?
1: Well, I really appreciate the question. Um, I was approached to do this book. It was not an idea I had originally on my own. And within that, uh, someone approached me basically twice and said, you know, very smartly. He had spoken to uh, a, a few book publishers in New York. It's kind of like anything else where. You uh, you know, if you're a sports agent, you kind of try to get a sense of the ideas you've got and the sorts of, you know, if your player wants to play for a certain team, you kind of try to talk to those teams beforehand. You're not supposed to, it's tampering technically on some <laughs> level uh, for uh, agents to be having prior contact, you know, while people are under contract, while their players are under contract, but they do it and teams will field those calls and put out feelers to get a sense of who they might be able to get. And, you know, literary agents do the same thing where they basically kind of throw out preemptive ideas um, to book publishers and people they know with the book publishers. You know, what would you think if I had this idea, if I had a writer do something on this, or I've got a writer that's thinking about this, can you give me a ballpark of maybe what that would yield money-wise if I had a writer do this? Um, On the flip side of that, you have literary agents that talk to book publishers and the heads of publishing houses to get a sense of what sorts of books the publishers want. Um, because those are ultimately the places that are setting the market as far as bidding on a book in the first place. If there's a bidding, what that looks like and how high they're willing to go. Um, And they're trying to track trends in the media to figure out what is obviously 2020, 2021. I think most industries looked out and said that they needed to be more diverse, that they wanted to have more black voices in particular as a result of everything that happened in in the aftermath of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. So with some of that, you know, the publishers are saying, we'd really like a book on this uh, or, you know, on this subject, or we think the timing would be good for a book on this. We'd really want to sell a book like this. So, you know, as my literary agent asked that question, a couple of the book publishers said, the Knicks have been terrible for a Mm -hmm. long time now. We think that a book on that subject on the 90s Knicks might do really well. Um, Now, keep in mind, and this is part of what was smart on my literary agent's part, he realized right away that, you know, the, the book publishers are basically all headquartered in New York in this country. So they're more likely to be Knicks fans and they're more likely to feel a nostalgia toward those 90s teams because the teams have been so bad since then. So good business at that point. Yeah. So at that point, he started trying to think of who might be a good author For a book like that, you could obviously try to find some of the people that covered those teams, that would be one possibility, or uh, what he ended up doing, he called around to a friend or two of his that were in the book industry that have written books before, and asked, you know, do you know of someone that might be really good for this project in particular, and when he asked the question, a, a really amazing writer named Jonathan Abrams mentioned me by name. Uh, and Jonathan had only met me once or twice, and both times it was just for a few minutes. So it was nothing special. Um, but he really respected the job I did on the Knicks beat. And he said, you know, and Chris is young, like he wasn't around for those teams. So I could pretty much guarantee you that he'll probably be more attentive to the details because he probably doesn't know all this backstory yet, but he always finds a different way of approaching things. You'd be really smart to ask him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my literary agent asked me. Um, I had a lot going on in my life. My dad had just passed away really unexpectedly a few months before. Um, I was really still swamped, you know, covering the NBA is a really busy job. Uh, When you cover it on a national scale, even when you do it on a, you know, just a, a beat one team that you're covering, it's busy. But when you're trying to watch the whole league and write about the whole league intelligently, you have to watch every team pretty frequently a time or two per week to be able to do that at the highest level. Um, so especially I really didn't have the time you, from that standpoint.
0: Especially because you're looking for those kind of trends and those weird kind of stats and things like that you're saying, right? So, especially.
1: Right. Yeah, especially to try to write those stories, to try to have something different in your in your story as opposed to it just being run of the mill and the same thing everybody else is writing. So um, I was reluctant from that standpoint, but I was just, was just trying to breathe, basically. You know, it, it's a huge, huge loss to lose a parent that you love as much as I did with my dad and you know it was 10 years after I'd lost my mom really unexpectedly as well so um just trying to exhale a little bit just trying to keep myself grounded and really um hear myself think a little bit um because you know when you pick up a project like that a few months after especially like my dad passed away in the middle of the playoffs in 2018 mm-hmm. so you don't really get a chance to exhale then because there's so much going on with work. Um, and really I had, maybe, I also was in the middle of teaching when that happened, teaching a course at Northwestern. So I had a lot of things I was trying to juggle along with my full-time job and just trying to keep my head on straight. So I, I was kind of just ready to say no to everything because I really didn't have time for myself. Um, and I did say no to this as well. Um, but, the literary agent was pretty persistent and reached back out a second time after I said, no, I basically said no again. Um, But I think he could tell that they're like, part of the reason I was saying no was like just a concern that um, this is a really heavy lift. I don't know how to do a project like this. I've never done one. And also maybe I'm not the best person for this because I wasn't around for it. So I don't really have as good a starting place for where to start this project, where to start this book. Um, where to start this research and, and how deeply the research needs to go so he said okay well i can hear some of what you're concerned about i don't want to be pushy but if you think it's something you might want to do at all why don't you talk to why don't you read a couple books or read a book or two and you know they'd be examples of people that did not cover the team or were not around to cover the team that they were writing about for the book um just to show you that it you know by the time you get done reading it you are convinced that they were there for everything because they do such a good a, a good job from a research standpoint, and so he had me basically talk to Jeff Proman, who I, I knew of a little bit anyway, and we followed each other on social media. He was kind enough to take a call from me as he I think as he was working on the Shaq Kobe book, and
0: um, really solid. We book. talked.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's interesting because I I love it. I've read it multiple times since it came out. I felt like it was also really useful to read as I was working on my Nick's book, just because you don't have that many books that are about a seven, eight, nine year period Mm -hmm. on one team, which is what I was trying to do. I think mine was a little different because I was writing about a team over that span without having won Mm -hmm. a title, which that's really rare to write a book about a decade where a team doesn't win. Um, But he's done several books on teams that have, I mean, he's basically written about, you know, a lot of the biggest dynasties over the last 20, 30 years. And so it was helpful to read a Shaq Kobe book that was pretty much close to the same era that I was writing about. So some of the same things were true and some of the same things were relevant. Those um, big
0: personalities but too.
1: Big, big personalities. And it was interesting because the first thing he said is that, well, it's an interesting team. Like, I don't know if I would want to do a book on them because they really didn't have that much star power. The one star they had was like, maybe not the most interesting person, which I think Ewing was interesting, but he was not, he was not the most, uh, exciting is probably the best way to put it. He was a, you know, kind of a, a more old school player and someone that didn't make many waves in the media. He was quiet and to himself. So I understood what he meant by that. Mm-hmm. He's certainly not Shaq or Kobe, but, um, he and I talked for a while and I, he could hear the, uh, the kind of the, he could hear the that I was worried and kind of the concern about taking on a project of this size. I didn't get into the reasons about why I was concerned, but I just was like, I don't know if I can do this. He was like, you can do this. It's just don't be fooled or surprised by the fact that it's a lot of work. It's going to be more work than you've ever done on anything. And, you know, it really should start with if you're acknowledging that you don't know anything about this team, you've got to just start calling everybody. You get all the media guides on these teams and, um, from every single year and you call all the employees and, you know, obviously the players and the coaches, but in order to tell a full complete story that is going to dig into areas that people don't know about, you have to talk to the people that worked for the team outside of those spheres because more or less people will kind of already know what happened on the court.
0: You're talking like, and marketing, maybe even, you're talking like marketing people, security people, like the entire everybody. Like, staff, like the, like, cause we yeah. kind of like blindly say Knicks organization as this kind of like, meeting kind of Dolan or something like that, but it, there is like (laughs) layers and people who work at all these levels.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's a huge undertaking. And I mean, you have, even back then when the organizations were smaller and had fewer people in these jobs, you know, assistant coaches, they had fewer of them, but marketing people, they had fewer, the budgets have increased as the sport has gotten bigger. And, um, but there were a lot of people back then too. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, making calls to people and, trying to talk people into speaking with you um, who they want to know why you're calling 25 years later. It's almost like if somebody tells you you've won a million dollars, yes, it'd be exciting to hear that. You know, if a reporter says they want to talk to you, some people probably get excited to hear that, but also you're wondering like, what's the catch, you know, like why is somebody trying to talk to me Mm -hmm. 25, 30 years later, he's never written a book before. You know, if you don't take the time to Google who I am, you're not going to know that I'm like a reputable, legitimate writer. You, you, you may not know. So, you know, all, all these things come into play. And uh, I, I had to, you know, kind of come to grips with the fact that like, there's no easy way to do this. You just have to do it. If you want to write a book, but it can be done well. You just have to do a lot of, a lot of work. And uh, so that was what Jeff said. And all of it was true. I, you know, I followed kind of what he laid out to a T I think it helped the book and, you know, I, I think it came out well. Obviously, some people disagree. <laughs> the reviews on it were were very, very kind, and and you know have given me a lot of confidence. And obviously, the sales of it have given me a lot of confidence. I think the fact that it's trending in a good direction to hopefully see you know a documentary, a docu series, or something like that done on it gives me a ton of confidence. You know, as someone that just finished a first book, but it's a lot of work, and you know, I would never tell someone they can't do it. As far as writing a book, somebody asked me like, would you tell people that not to do this. No, I wouldn't tell them that anybody can do it, but it, you know, in order to do it well, I think it, it takes a lot of work. At least for me, it took a lot of work. And I can imagine that most people would take a lot of work to do something like this.
0: The, the lot of work that you're talking about, you mentioned in the, in the afterwards, uh, you talked to over 200 people. And one of the people that you talked to is uh, Pastor John Love. There's a wonderful spirituality that kind of runs through the book. Uh, there's prayerful moments with Pastor John Love and Starks. Uh, obviously, uh, some of those prayers probably didn't get answered properly. Uh, but your dad passed away shortly uh, before you began the book, as you said. Like, And sports in general are just about belief and faith with the occasional miracle that something can a- kind of happen. And when you see the Knicks, they're always just so close, right? Just a finger roll away, just always knocking on the door, but can't quite get over that hump. And so there is like a wonderful spirituality that kind of echoes throughout the book, which is not something you would normally connect with or associate with the 90s Knicks.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, there is. And I, I thought it was useful to have that. And I appreciate you picking up on that theme. I think you're one of two people that's asked me about it. I, I did one podcast a couple months back with um, a rabbi who is a really big fan of my work. I appreciate him. His name Ari Lamb. And uh, he, um, he, he wanted to have me on to discuss my faith to some extent, which was interesting. Um, you know, but he knew a little bit of the backstory with my parents and everything like that. And it's a fan of my work, a fan of the Knicks. And um, so he picked up on that too. And I thought pastor love was one of the more interesting people to talk to in the book, not only because he had really great details leading up to game seven of the 94 finals. And the fact that he remembered, John Starks coming into chapel that day and, you know, and remembered more or less praying for the players, not just the Knicks players, but players generally to play to the best of their ability. And he made a comment to me about that, more or less saying, you know, it was obvious that that part of the prayer didn't pan out, you know, is <laughs> it related to John. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, like it was, so it was like a, kind of a lighthearted moment, but we talked about a lot of serious things too from Pat Riley and kind of, you know, more or less he used the phrase like chilling effect that Pat Riley had on his players feeling comfortable going into prayer before games because Pat Riley, I don't know exactly what he said or exactly what he did uh, to the Knicks to make them feel that way. But just this feeling that Pat Riley viewed the idea of having a deep faith and kind of displaying it on the court or in the arena is like a softness or like maybe not being tough or the idea that maybe it kind of weakens you, which I, you know, I would love to ask Pat how or why he thought that was the case, but, he had said something similar to one of his players from the Lakers that I quoted in the book where he more or less said that he, he wonders if reading the Bible too much just kind of takes away some of the ruggedness. And so, you know, talking to the pastor about that, I thought was interesting talking to the pastor about Ewing was mm-hmm. interesting and in how they kept trying to get Ewing to be a bigger part of what the team was doing. Cause most of the players were involved in one way or another with chapel or with prayer. And Ewing was like the one guy who, John love could never really loop into the circle. He tried one time Ewing walked in to chapel and thought, you know, that Ewing thought he was walking into an empty room where he could sneak away and eat a cheeseburger. And he actually, (laughs) you know, had walked right into chapel and it made the pastor so excited because he thought he finally had Ewing to, you know, got him to come to a prayer session. And it was actually not because of that. But I think the biggest thing to what we were talking about earlier with Mason, everybody talks, you know, to no end about how, uh, how difficult a person Anthony Mason could be, how, um, you know, maybe not the most upstanding figure at every moment he could be, but Pastor Love really loved dealing with Anthony Mason in part because he kind of felt like he could really counsel him and that he could see that Mason really wanted the counsel, uh, because Mason knew he lived kind of a wild life. And so, um, somebody at one point said, you know, pastor, I, I just want you to know that Mace is kind of, I don't know if that's the kind of guy you want around in chapel. And he shot back at the guy. He said, if if you're saying Mace is who he is and what he is, he's exactly the guy I want because I can help him, I can work with him. Uh, So, you know, it it was really interesting to hear that. It was really interesting to hear kind of how devoted Mason was to his own faith. Um, And while I haven't read a book that you and I were talking about uh, just before we hopped on the pod, we were talking about the uh, It Was All a Dream book by Justin Tinsley, Mm -hmm. and it was really interesting. You know, I've watched a couple of his interviews about that process and really what he felt he learned about uh, Biggie, and he has a lot of the, like, a, a similar refrain in his book about how there are certain things he would just kind of assume about Biggie, just kind of, you know, listening to his music and hearing about the way he died and everything with that. The guy was very, very spiritual, and that he had a lot of the same things at the end of his life that he was talking about that Mason really was doing where Mason was very devoted. Uh, Mason carried an electronic Bible around. He would ask people out of the blue if they were Christians like he was. Uh, So his faith was important to him. And I felt like it was kind of interesting. Um, You know, and I don't think this is why they had so many miraculous plays, but when you talk about a, a team that kind of was a miracle that they even made it as far as they did so many times and, you know, that they were, um fortunate to win as much as they did, there was a lot of faith involved. Again, not that one leads to the other, but this mm-hmm. was a team that was really big on faith. Not to even mention somebody like Charlie Ward, who um, you know, I, I think sometimes was so religious and so spiritual to where it actually offended people. Um, and I think rightfully so, given some of the stuff in the book and, and just in his background, but um just an interesting, interesting team all the way around. But the spirituality was part of it too. And I think explain some of the bonds that the team had where seven and eight players at a time would have a Bible study, you know, when they would go on the road and stuff like that, it, it, at least in 97, that was the case.
0: Yeah. So as we're wrapping up, I want to just do a, a lightning round with a handful of like Nick's players and some maybe Nick moments where you can just share either like a brief emotion or a pivotal highlight or a short story from your book, anything like that, just kind of like a lightning round, if that's cool. Uh, i sure. want to start with charles smith sure
1: well he was someone i i tried really hard to get for the book uh, everybody kind of kept telling me he he i don't think he's gonna want to open up about this but try him uh you know and i tried to get everybody for the book so i i called him um talked to him on he was getting i could hear the subway doors closing behind him
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh when he was getting on the train and i I don't know what I assumed about where he lived. I figured he still lived in the Northeast, but I didn't know he lived in New York. And I just thought to myself, wow, what a, a, a difficult place to continue to live, you know, given the way I think a lot of Knicks fans think about him. And he was someone that I didn't, I didn't anticipate writing a whole, whole, whole lot about. Obviously you're going to focus on that moment in game five and 93. But um, I ended up realizing like, I have to have a chapter on this guy because really the most painful moment of the last 50 years for the Knicks and their fans was involving him. And there was a lot that led up to that. And I think it scarred him in a way, maybe not that play, but certainly the way he was kind of talked about and treated after that play. And even to some extent before that play uh, by Riley, by his teammates to some extent, and just the chronic knee issues he would have, it was a, um, a difficult time in his life. And I, I felt like I had to get to the bottom of that. So he was someone that I really wanted to speak to at length, but he he declined to speak to me um, that day on the phone.
0: That play you're talking about is the the four blocks or the strips or whatever you want yeah. to call them. It really is like a metaphor for the Knicks. Just like he's right under the basket. Uh, the, the Knicks were down by one. All he has to do is lay it up or dunk it. And he just couldn't gather it ball, couldn't get it. Uh, Jordan and Horace Grant and Pippen are all swiping and blocking the ball and stuff. It's just – it's really a metaphor for the, the Knicks as a whole. Like, they're just so close. <laughs> and if they could just get up and just, like, lay it off the glass or something, there, it's just a game of inches. And, unfortunately, just couldn't get it done.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I, I lay this out. I think in the – I don't know if it's in the epilogue or if it's in the last chapter. I can't remember it anymore. But, um, you know, you look at it year by year. 92, Riley's first year. They take the Bulls to seven, uh, you know, the 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 threepeat Bulls to seven games. It's the first time Michael Jordan had been taken to seven games in, you know, in his title era. Um, and they were, it wasn't that they were like competitive; they were winning the series through six games. Basically, they had more points, more rebounds, more assists. They were the more physical team. I think they had four flagrant fouls to the Bulls zero, going going into Game Seven. They were intimidating, Scottie Pippen. They were holding the Bulls almost 30 points below their playoff average in scoring that round, and 20 points below their regular season average. It was insane how well they were playing and how much they were re- really taking it to the Bulls. So they were very close in 92. They you know, they took the Bulls to a seven-game series in 92, despite being the road team in that series. Uh, 93 was the Charles Smith play. 94, they lose in a game seven where John Stark shoots two for 18. That was they the almost unseen. won game six of that series that with was John Stark taking the last shot on Hakeem Olajuwon. Yeah, so there was that. You think about the finger roll in 95 where Patrick Ewing bounces it off the back iron in a game seven against the Pacers in Riley's last game. They, they easily could have won that game in that series, which would have put them in the conference finals that year. Uh, you look at 97 and they are up three games to two in that series. And, you know, the fight breaks out. They were actually up 3-1, but they were up 3-2 at that point um, when the fight breaks out against the Miami Heat. And half their team gets suspended, including Patrick Ewing, who barely came off the bench. So it changes the, the look of that series, and they lose that series, one that they easily could have won in 97. Um, and then you look at the other years. 98 was a year that they kind of lost out on Patrick Ewing shatters his wrist. And then 99, they make the surprise run to the finals. And, you know, Patrick Ewing isn't able to play in the last two rounds, basically, because he, you know, he tears part of his Achilles. Uh, He hampers his Achilles. Uh, Larry Johnson has a a really bad knee and bad back in that series. One that they're playing against the Spurs where they've got two of the best big men of all time. And the Knicks really don't have healthy big men to really, really compete in that series the way they otherwise could have. So they had so many close calls. They benefited sometimes and won some of the close calls. Certainly um, when we talk about, the Pacer series and the four point play that they probably shouldn't have been able to benefit from the, you you mentioned the Hubert Davis one, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with Scottie Pippen. So they did benefit sometimes, but they had so many close calls that they just barely missed out on. Um, And that was kind of the story of their run. And I think part of what made them so fascinating, they're not quite as compelling and quite as interesting to me. If it's not a heartbreak story, if they win, um, they're not remembered kind of in this heartbreak fashion that I think keeps them so vivid in a lot of people's memories.
0: So just sticking with the, a couple more names with the lightning round, uh, let's stick with the heartbreak and talk about Reggie Miller. His, yeah,
1: it's to, not to knock him at all, but is almost he actually was of, partly because of that interplay with the Knicks and between them and the Knicks. Uh, I You know, at one point I was trying to figure out, like, can you make the case that Patrick was really, the most isolated star of that era, meaning that like he had the least help offensively. And so Reggie Miller was another guy I thought about and, you know, not just the the most isolated, but also like the best and most isolated. And I was, so I was trying to figure out like what comparisons can you make between Miller and Ewing and who was the better player and looking, I think Reggie was an all-star like five times, whereas Patrick was an all-star 11 times. Um, You know, Reggie was a, a, a dominant shooter. And just a great, great shooter, but he wasn't much for a defender. Uh Ewing was a pretty good defender. I, I don't think he was nearly, nearly as great as he was in college. Um, and you know, I think Reggie had a little bit more help on offense. Obviously, Rick Smith was there. Later we get Jalen Rose, later we get Chris Mullen. David so he Reuters. had other talent. Yeah, that well, you know, those were guys more like offensive rebounders but mm-hmm. not you know not guys that are really going to help you get 15 or 20 a That's game right, yeah. but but you know Reggie did have guys that could do that at least later on um but Reggie was someone that again I think a lot of his uh, intrigue was really built off the rivalry with the Knicks I've got his book sitting here called I Love Being the Enemy and I think literally the first sentence of the book is I hate the New York Knicks it's the first sentence of his <laughs> book so it's it runs deep for him um I think he actually might be the most hated of anybody from those nineties years, maybe other than Riley. I I don't know. People might have some love for Riley because he won with them and he helped them win. But I think with Reggie Miller, with Riley, like those guys, I'm sorry, uh, Riley and Michael Jordan, they've had so much success everywhere else that it's kind of makes sense that they would be a thorn in your side to some extent, or that they would hurt you in some way. Reggie Miller, it, it really did kind of feel like he only did that to the Knicks. Um, so it was kind of like you, you – there was a certain aspect of you that could respect Michael for being as dominant as he was, but it it had to be even more annoying that Reggie was so good against the Knicks because it really did feel like he only put those nails in the coffin with New York mm-hmm. and that it was so specific to New York and that he did it more than once. Obviously, the Spike Lee game, but also the one with eight points and nine seconds
0: the 95 that
1: really had had a, a huge role in ending that era with, uh, with Pat Riley. That was a series that ended – his career with the Knicks.
0: Yeah, I saw that game like live, like on NBC, and uh, it was just jaw dropping. Because there's a certain point where, again, because this is before the three point shot era, really, right? A lot of people are not shooting consistent threes, and so the psychology of the leads at that time were a lot more intimidating. So you figure this game's quote unquote over, right? And you know Reggie can shoot a three, and it might be there's still a little bit of hope. It's not completely over, but just being able to steal the inbound ball and doing all those things. It was just nuts. Uh, one more name for the lightning round, Spike Lee, since you kind of mentioned him already.
1: <laughs> yeah. So obviously he was a part of that interplay as well. Um, and What an interesting guy. I mean, just uh, someone that bought season tickets the, the day, you know, I guess a couple hours after Patrick Ewing uh, that it was clear that the Knicks would be able to draft Patrick Ewing after that 1985 draft lottery. Um, you know, essentially went through a breakup as the Knicks landed the number one pick in kind of funny fashion. Um, and you know, the next morning, uh, went to go pick up tickets early the next morning has had season tickets ever since for the Knicks. So, you know, certainly their most prominent fan that everybody recognizes someone that's lived through the heartbreak, someone that befriended a lot of those players. And, um, you know, some of them helped finance his, you know, one of the most famous movies he's ever made Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. Um, So he would take the players and kind of wine and dine them to take them to various bars and restaurants throughout the city to kind of talk business with them, to try to, you know, to schmooze with them a little bit and introduce them to Denzel Washington or Halle Berry and someone who, you know, loved the book, you know, I guess it's kind of a plug. He really, uh, he, he somehow got his hands on the book a week before it came out and made a point to get my phone number and track me down and tell me how much he enjoyed it and wanted to know how I even got and how I knew so much information. Cause he's like, okay, you know, obviously the players know certain things and they assume they're going to go to the grave with certain details from those years. And, you know, I wasn't on the team, but the players are tight with me. So I'm kind of in that inner circle. And I'm just telling you that nobody knows some of the stuff you had in this book, like other than the players and me and maybe their families. So I'm so impressed with what you got here. Like he was blown away.
0: That's really by a detail
1: I had. Uh, Yeah, he was blown away by a detail I had in the book about Rolando Blackman as it related to why Pat Riley might not have used him in the playoff series against uh, against the Rockets in the finals in 94. Like he knew that, but he didn't know that anybody else knew that. And I was like, well, I didn't either until Rolando Mm -hmm. told me, you know, and and a couple other guys on the team hinted at the fact that something might have taken place with uh, with Rolando and Pat, maybe them having an argument before the series. So. Um, it was really, really cool to kind of have his stamp and his endorsement on it. He, uh, he did a book talk with me, which was, you know, just kind of like a life, I guess not a life goal. Cause I never set out for that goal, but again, not too many people that you could have conversations with about the Knicks that are going to be more passionate about it than he is. And so I'm really grateful.
0: And just as we're wrapping up, do we have to also acknowledge like the culture of Madison square garden? Because Pat Riley, as you said, he took this team, the team wasn't very good, and he kind of basically infused them with this culture of like, we're going to knock Michael Jordan to the floor, it's going to be hard fouls, and like really like uh, hard hat, construction-y kind of type guys. Bruisers, basically. Um, And we've seen Pat Riley have success with the Lakers in terms of creating culture, we've seen him have it with the Knicks, and of course with the Heat. He's really famous for the Heat culture. So this idea of like creating a culture is great for the teams and stuff like that but what about the actual culture of the fans in Madison Square Garden and all these incredible things that have happened on the sacred floor does this also have an influence too in terms of like uh, influence or an impact on the team
1: It might I don't know I mean I I do think it's an interesting place in the sense that uh... <laughs> you know, Dave check has made a comment to me at the beginning of the process when I was doing this book. And I asked him like, what was your goal when you first got there? Because you obviously want to build something beautiful and something sustainable, but you also have like your initial things that you want to take care of and get straightened out first. And so I said like, what was your goal? Like the first year you bring in Riley, that's a big deal. Did you think that you could win the whole thing right away? Did you think it was going to be like a slow build a slow, a slow burn? And he said, um, You know, frankly, I thought we weren't going to be very good that first year. And so the things I was actually trying to put into place after getting Riley and, you know, signing off on certain moves was that I really wanted us to do things around the margins just to make the game more entertaining for people, in part because I wanted people to focus less on the on-court product that first year and wanted them to kind of be distracted. I wanted us to have team dancers so that people could be distracted during timeouts I wanted us to have the Jumbotron. I wanted us to have, um, I'm blanking at the moment, like what the other things were, but there were like three or four things he listed that were all kind of like ancillary and not particular to the game itself. And I think that speaks to the fact that, you know, what he was worried about was that if the team wasn't good right away or really good right away, that fans were going to bear down on the team and boo them in a way that made it more difficult for the Knicks to focus. And he said that, you know, in the the couple of months that he was running the team before that season that they brought Riley on, he noticed that it felt like the team really didn't enjoy or look forward to playing at home because of some of that, because they'd been, you know, the eighties had been really rough for them. The nineties were kind of just more of the same. Uh, They had two years where Rick Pitino had them respectable, but other than that, They'd been pretty rough since those title years. So he really sensed that they didn't enjoy playing at home. And so he was trying to build the home atmosphere into something that was special, into something that was not intimidating for the home team. You don't want to be playing on the road for 82 games a year. And that was basically the way he framed it. So I I do think that that alone was something that they were trying to change because it's unusual to have a crowd that... I don't think they were working against the Knicks, but that was the way he was describing it and the feeling that they had. Um, And then you take into account that, and to this day, it's such a special experience for opposing players to come into the garden. And so on some level, guys, like, save their best for that atmosphere. And the Knicks fans, New Yorkers generally, just like with Broadway, they like to be entertained. And so I remember covering Steph Curry's 54-point game. Mm -hmm. Fans were cheering for Steph Curry. Like, that's kind of a difficult atmosphere to play in when you kind of feel like your fans might be cheering for the guy making historic stuff happen on the other side. So, um, that's what I think makes Knicks fans unusual is I think without realizing it sometimes. And I think this is kind of a Northeastern thing. I don't think it's just Knicks fans, but I do think the big performances by opponents is kind of more of a Knicks thing where fans will cheer the opponent if they're really, really good and they're putting on a show. Um, so you're working against some of that, particularly during those Jordan years, you're working against a lot of that, um, so I think that's probably what made the fans most different. I think that the fans were wonderful for the Knicks, but I also think they really liked being entertained and arguably the best entertainer to ever play the game was, you know, the Knicks rivals. So you're having to work against that to some extent and having to work through that. And I think that's kind of what Dave Checkitz was explaining, which made, you know, that time a very interesting time and why the Knicks had to get a lot better so that they were not having to kind of play against their own crowd a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, I've been fortunate to go to about 10 or 12 Uh, games at Madison Square Garden, and it is, like, a very (laughs) sacred place, and, like, you feel a different energy. I've been to Staples Center, I've seen Kobe, like, I've been to 76ers, I've been to Raptors games, I've been to many different kind of arenas, but there is a completely different energy, like, you almost feel like you have to have your guard up, (laughs) like, anything can happen, there's ruckus might happen, like, it's very electric and it's uh it's a great arena to go to in terms of seeing a basketball game. And as you said, if you're lucky and you can get a Jordan 55 point game or Curry going off or something like that, then you get a real treat. Hmm.
1: Yeah, you get that. And, and you know, if you're a Knicks fan, you're hoping that they get a win despite that. And you know, the, the Curry game was like that where the Knicks did win. The 55 point game was not like that. Um, Almost, you know, it was very close. They, they had a chance to win it. Um, and obviously Jordan made the play at the end, but uh but that that's what's interesting about us I, I kind of feel like uh Knicks fans will admit to you that they really want to see something special happen even if it's against the Knicks uh, they would prefer for it not to be that way but uh if that's what it takes sometimes they you know they like to be part of history which is cool um but it you know it, it is something and, and I think to this day it's like an impediment to some extent for the Knicks because you know everybody talks about how there's always guys always go off for career highs at Massive Square Garden. Okay. Part of that is probably that the Knicks haven't been very good Mm -hmm. for a while. But the other part of it is that guys really do get amped to play in that environment, you know, on that stage. It literally feels like a stage with the lighting sometimes. So uh, the Knicks have to fight through some of that at times.
0: Great. We covered quite a bit. The book is called Blood in the Garden. The flagrant history, of course, it's the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. Uh, We covered that there's quite a bit of spirituality that runs through the book. And that uh, you talked to Jeff Berman, another great writer as well. Spike Lee gave it a two thumbs up. Like, uh, it seems like you did the right thing uh, by writing the book. <laughs> it's a little bit weak, but we'll allow it, right?
1: <laughs> I'll take it. I'll All take right.
0: It. And uh, so thank you so much, Chris, for like hanging out. Uh, we covered quite a bit, so I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate you.
0: Yo, that was Chris Herring talking about his NBA book, Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. I'm Sammy, host of my summer lair. This episode went a bit long, but it's brimming with so much good stuff. I'm a Jordan fan, so I detested the 90s Knicks. Yet, I also relished those battles. It's a complicated relationship with that team. Choose your enemies carefully because they will define you. Jordan did good. If you want to know more about my complicated feelings, I have a Substack newsletter, My Pal Sammy. You can sign up at mysummerlayer.com slash subscribe. It's fun, and if you're a curious individual who wants a cannonball into overlooked aspects of popular culture, sign up today, my pal Sammy newsletter at substack.com or mysummerlayer.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening to me in a Netflix world. NYX yo.